Welcome to the Birmingham Lit Fest Presents podcast series. I'm Kit Duval and I've worked with the festival director Chantal Edwards as guest curator of this year's podcast series. Each Thursday, across the next few months, we'll be releasing new episodes of the podcast, including wonderful discussions about writing, poetry, big ideas and social issues. In today's episode, journalist and author Sam Baker talks to fellow writer Kate Spicer about her latest book, The Shift. Part memoir and part feminist manifesto, The Shift redefines the narrative around menopause and makes visible the lives and experiences of women over 40. In this podcast, Sam and Kate discuss the cultural silence around menopause, the invisibility of women past childbearing age, and the freedom, power, and confidence of life after menopause. Hello and welcome to the Birmingham Literature Festival. My name is Kate Spicer and I'm here with Sam Baker. Sam started her career in journalism and was the editor of some very significant uh, British women's magazines, including Just Seventeen, Company, Cosmopolitan, Red. She went on to edit an internet magazine called The Pool, which was multiple award winning and generally recognised as changing the way women's journalism was done online. She's also written five novels and now is the author of The Shift, her first non-fiction book and of a podcast of the same name. This is an extraordinary book and I would expect no less from a woman who was once my editor. <laughs> it is very deep, very wide. It bears her soul, her guts and also, I should say, her <laughs> vagina. <laughs> uh, Thanks, Kate. It's one of it's one of the most extraordinary books I've ever read about the menopause because it is so incredibly fearless and also refuses to get too boring on the technical stuff. Sam, can you start Can we start with a reading? Yeah, we can start with a reading and um, hopefully one that doesn't mention my vagina. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to read from the very beginning of the book. It dawned on me that something wasn't right around the time I was 46. It could have been earlier. But after a lifetime of gynaecological chaos, I didn't pay much attention when my periods dribbled more or less to a halt. My confidence crashed. Not ideal when you've just ditched a high-profile job to start a business that depends, at least in part, on your capacity for self-belief. And now you're standing in the kitchen, howling that you're a failure and resigning was a terrible mistake. Where once I would have bulldozed straight on, confident on the outside, if not inside, now I simply couldn't see a way through. On top of that came the depression, which was less a matter of highs and lows than a case of lows and lowers. I had less than ever to be depressed about. I just was. Then came the sweats. Oh, Lord, the sweats. I'm not sure which was worse. The hot flushes during the day, when you could at least feel them roaring in and try to get to the nearest loo to lie down, body pressed to the cold and inevitably vile tiled floor until they passed. Or the night sweats. Often I'd wake in a puddle, skin soaked, hair slicked to my body, sheet and duvet drenched. I seriously worried I'd started wetting the bed. What the hell was going on? Then my good friend the flesh duvet moved in and decided to stay, indefinitely. Of course I had a suspicion, but I couldn't bear to accept it. I wasn't old enough, was I? I was 46, going on, I don't know, 30. I looked young for my age, people always said. I felt young. Wasn't menopause something that happened to old people? 
Was I old? Despite the countless blogs and Facebook groups and self-help books, I didn't really know where to turn. None of my friends would admit to being perimenopausal yet, and seeking help on social media felt like a public admission of ageing, which sounds ridiculous now. But then, only a few years ago, when no one would even whisper the word menopause, it felt like a huge deal. Eventually, unable to carry on in the body and brain of someone I hardly recognised, I barged into the office of the gynaecologist who'd helped me with my endless problems, yelling, Help! Give me all the drugs! Brushing aside her futile attempts to talk me through a leaflet that explained the link between HRT and breast cancer, I left triumphant with a prescription and the leaflet. I never did read the leaflet. Right then, I didn't care about the potential risks or side effects. All I cared about was taking a magic pill to bring me back to me. I took it, and lucky for me, it worked. Slowly, I started to re-emerge. As months passed, I began to be able to identify other women with that faintly deranged what-the-fuck-is-happening-to-me look in their eyes and a tendency to suddenly overheat. It didn't happen overnight. After all, it's not as if you can go up to complete strangers and say, Oh, I noticed you were looking a bit hot. And at work, I was surrounded by women who were up to 20 years younger than me. Their conversation was all about whether they would ever be able to afford to buy a flat and if or when to start trying for a baby. Why would they care about someone so ancient that their eggs and plenty of other bits were drying up? If I'd known then what I know now, I would have approached the whole thing totally differently. I wouldn't have spent precious hours hunting down other women who looked a bit hot and irritable and kept tugging uncomfortably at their clothes. Instead, I would have developed a radar for the rare, relaxed older woman you see very occasionally in the street, in cafes, at work dues. Rumour has it they're more plentiful in certain parts of America, but in the UK you have to look pretty hard to spot them. And on finding them, I would have begged them to share their wisdom. How did they get there? And what was it like on the other side? How did they shift from hot, flabby, depressed, confused, and convinced they had early onset dementia, to calm, radiant, and in control, with an indefinable air of togetherness and an ability to rise above the whole shit show? Journalists tend to romanticise or demonise menopause. It's a time when you supposedly either stop caring about the shape of your jeans and start wafting contentedly along beaches in wide-legged linen trousers, sensible sandals and floppy hats, or become the plate-smashing heroine of Revenge of the Menopausal Woman. Unsurprisingly, the reality is not a lot like that. You're either judged for taking HRT or judged for not taking it, for giving up or living in denial, for Botoxing, or not Botoxing. The list of things you're doing wrong is endless. And let's face it, that list was never short. Just ask a pregnant woman, or indeed any woman. Plus, everyone is suddenly an expert, especially the Burks on the internet. But in reality, nobody knows enough about the menopause, and that includes the bulk of the medical profession. But don't despair. This book is here to show you that on the other side of menopause, there is a whole new life and an opportunity to discover a new, unexpected version of you. A body, mind, attitude and sexuality that is recognisably you, but different. A you who is not ruled by your fertility, or lack of it. It's called The Shift. Fantastic. I love your book, Sam. And it's quite Thanks, astonishing babe. in the number of different 
there's sort of different elements you've got in there. For a start, it's a romp of a read. You know, you can oh, get good. you can get That's lost funny. in it. Yeah, it, but you know, there's you, you have a very strong feminist sensibility, and there is something of a feminist manifesto in there. It's an extremely brave memoir, and you go through things that you probably didn't need to address in this book, but you have, and it's all the better for it. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. Why? Can't it's wait. a polemic <laughs> for sure, <laughs> and I'm not. And it's a polemic that needed writing. It's not because you're an angry menopausal woman. It is. It is a polemic that needed writing, and it is a self-help. I did find myself quite sort of nourished and nurtured at the end of reading it. I I actually don't know where to start. It's 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 real <laughs> cracker. I'm gonna, but I'm gonna start and ask you firstly, how are you now? I'm great now. Seriously, and that, that sounds facetious, but. No, I, I really am. And that was what made me decide to go there with the book because, you know, my menopause was really grim. I mean, really, really grim. And, you know, it's, it's worth saying that not everybody's will be. You know, some people just sail through it. And personally, I don't want to know them or talk to them. But, you know, some people just don't even hardly notice it. But mine was terrible. And when I came out the other side and I felt... I mean, it wouldn't be an exaggeration to say I felt completely different, but certainly psychologically. Um, and I just thought, how would it have been to have, you know, a, for a book to have existed that said, you know, it might be terrible and these are the things you might go through, but actually on the other side is a whole, a whole new thing. It's like, I think we, there's a tendency to think that menopause is like, it's the end. It's the end of the story, full stop. And, it's not. It's just the end of a chapter, and there's a whole. There are loads more chapters. Um, I mean, it's quite. It, in a way, you sort of written it in a big sisterly way. It's like you know, read read this. Don't suffer like I do. Swear, um, big sister. Yeah, the best kind. But you, I mean, you interview a lot, a lot of women, uh, very wide ranging, and you've also clearly done your research and you've read a lot of the existing material. If you were to give your menopause marks out of 10, where 10 is that poor woman in the vaginal, here we go. How many times can we say the word vagina in this, in this, in this podcast? We're going to end up with a big E on the end of the um, title of the podcast. Explicit. The, uh, yeah, like an NWA album. But the, um, <laughs> but if you were to give uh, your, because there's a lady in your, Jane in your vaginal atrophy chapter, which I actually quite enjoyed. I, I like reading bits out to my boyfriend. There's a lady in there who clearly has had, has the most horrific menopause. If we put her at say 10 and the woman who sails through that none of us want to know at zero, where, where do you think you sit? There were moments when it was probably a seven right. or maybe an eight. I mean, Jane, the woman you're talking about, Jane Lewis, who's written a uh, a leg cross inducing book called Me and My Menopausal Vagina about her experience of, of vaginal atrophy. I mean, she, she, what that poor woman has been through is incredible. But no, I would say, uh, I probably netted out at about a seven. Right. That's a tough one. And how long did that last? Oh, God. Well, I, so, like I said, I started, I, I kind of became aware that everything wasn't right when I was about 46. But I wasn't really aware of what, what wasn't right at that point. Because I think that you're, you know, we're all aware that, oh, yeah, menopausal women, they get hot and they get a bit kind of like padded and they're yeah. the kind of butt of jokes on TV and that's about it. So the mental health symptoms of menopause are massive and so many and they're the most common symptoms. 
But I just, when I kind of started having massive anxiety attacks, my confidence was through the floor, you know, I, my, it was just horrific. And then also the brain fog. I didn't know. I didn't know what that was. Yeah. Um, so it probably took, I don't know, maybe took me 18 months, a couple of years to even work that out, what that was. So probably all in all, it lasted about five years, but that's not hugely long. And by that, the end of that, I was, you know, taking HRT and, and working through other stuff and, you know, so it was not five years of unmanageability. It's Probably funny, you, you, it, it's funny, my mum, my mother, I'm, I mean, we're roughly the same age. I'm 51 and you are 54, 54. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my mum never really talked to me about periods in the, in the kind of eighties. So they were a bit of a surprise when they came. <laughs> and I have to say, she didn't talk to me about the menopause either. And that, you know, like, like exactly like you say, you know, it's a kind of, it's a stereotype, a cliche, like a cartoon type understanding we have of something that's going to profoundly change our bodies and our lives uh, because we'd not taught anything about it. And so I, you mentioned early onset dementia, that was the thing that in the end made me realise I, I might be menopausal. It's that I just kept, I, I actually thought I was, I had dementia. I was so frightened. But I didn't mention it to anybody because I was so paranoid. And it was, and then I had this bizarre reaction to eating raw onion, and my face swelled up, and it was like an anaphylactic shock. And I went to my GP, who thankfully was middle-aged, as you say in your book. Middle-aged female GPs tend to be a lot more sympathetic than the other female GP I went to, who told me, "Oh, you'll be fine. You'll sail through it. Very few people have a bad time." Uh, and she said, <laughs> and "Oh, how that's... old was that?" Yeah. Oh, she was like thirty. She was a child. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> But yeah, and so this anaphylactic shock and this early onset dementia turned out to be the menopause. And I went on HRT and I was like, whoa, my life back. It was the most kind of wonderful thing. Anyway, we're not here to discuss my menopause, but it has been a real relief to see it written about in so much de detail. And also with such great humour. It's a really good read. Just just a little bit about your process before we go into, into more into the nitty gritty of the, the material. You know, how how did you start? Where did you start? Um, I mean, one of the reasons I really enjoy, I, I mean, I can say I enjoyed writing it. I mainly enjoyed writing it. Was it just, it was, I was just a journalist about it. You know, I just did journalism. So I did loads of research, um, all of the kind of, you know, reading all the menopause books, realizing in the main that this was why I had never read any menopause books because they're <laughs> either why, why? They, what were they like well they were either extremely dry or <laughs> god like like every vagina. word has a connotation stop it <laughs> every word has a connotation there um but they are extremely dry and academic or they're a bit you know oh take this vitamin with your guava juice and I'm not that person but there is actually one great book which I will give a little plug because it's it's quite something. It's a book called Flash Camp Diary by by Darcy Steinke, um, and I quote from it a few times in the book because it's the only other book that I've read that made me think, yeah, that makes sense to me. Mm. So I did the I did the book learning research and um, and started doing face to face interviews. But I also, I mean, my favourite bit of the whole process really was I did a shout out on social media for women to volunteer to tell me their stories. Mm. Because I was really conscious that, you know, I'm a straight, white, cis woman. You know, I've come from a working class background, but I've lived a middle class life all the time I've worked in media. So 
my experience is limited, you know. Um, so mm. I wanted to speak to as many women as I possibly could. Then um, lockdown happened. I was about halfway through. So a lot of the conversations then took place on online or on, on social media. So I did, I did a journalism approach and basically did all the research and then I sat down to write it. And I always planned for each chapter to be kind of memoir and then other women and then, and you know, and then social and political context and, and all of that. But, um, I hadn't really quite envisaged some of the memoir working out quite the way it did. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's, there's some incredibly intense moments of memoir in there, which, which really surprised me actually, because I mean, having worked for you on the ill-fated but incredibly brilliant minx in the late nineties, you are an honest person, but you don't go into a lot of detail about your life. And I wouldn't have called you, I wouldn't have expected to see these moments of memoir that are, that are very intense. Um, are you trying to say I've overshared? No, I'm not trying to say <laughs> I've overshared. I also wrote a memoir that could be called one with <laughs> endless amounts of oversharing. I don't, th I don't think it's oversharing at all. It just surprised me for you. And I, and I, I wondered how hard it was for you to go into those moments of intense where you discuss you know your repeated sexual abuse as a teenager you, I mean less surprising is you discuss having to deal with lots of horrible men who you know I'm not let, let us that. know yeah. that the feminist cause still has a long way to go um, <laughs> you talk about your eating disorder you, you know you, you do really really go there can you talk me through that process did it surprise you that it did it, did it just happen? Did you did you sit and consider it? Did did you think about how much detail to go into? Was it cathartic? I I didn't sit and consider it. If I sat and considered it, I probably there's certainly a couple of chapters that wouldn't be there. I think once I started, well, there are two things really. I mean, it, it's not disingenuous to say that a couple of the chapters, especially at the end, when I kind of find writing a book when you get towards the end. It's almost a bit like riding a bike downhill. The rest of writing the book isn't like that. It's like a big uphill slog. But there's, with every book I've ever written, there's been a point where you turn the corner almost, and then you're just typing, typing, typing frantically, and it all comes spewing out. And certainly a couple of chapters at the end were really like that. And the bravery chapter in particular, it wasn't the chapter I intended to write when I sat down and wrote it. But, you know, I wrote it very quickly. Um, and then I went and said to my husband, oh, I think maybe you need to read this. <laughs> Tell me what mm. you think. And he, he went, whoa, I didn't know you were going to do that. And I said, like, no, nor did I. But actually, one of the, you know, the big drives of the book for me is that I just think that if we all talked about it more, if, it, if menopause was just a thing, that we talked about in the way that young women now talk about periods it just wouldn't be the issue that it is. And I think it would start to address a lot of the societal problems around the way older women are treated. So I got to that point and I just thought in order for this, sorry, like writer speak this, for this narrative arc to make sense, I need to tell the truth about the resolution that menopause gave me. And that meant I had, to, I felt I had to write that bravery chapter. It made everything make sense. And that's, it's definitely one of the reasons why I feel so much better within myself than I ever have. Because instead of spending my life fighting against the mixed, well, mixed emotions would be something of an understatement that that abusive relationship gave me, I dealt with it. And I dealt with something that I hadn't, that had taken me 30 years to deal with. So I felt like it was really, really important. 
to say that. I mean, ironically, the sorry, vaginal atrophy chapter. I didn't bother <laughs> me at all, right? It didn't bother me at all writing that. I mean, I felt a bit conscious of my mum reading it, poor woman, but um, it, that, that didn't bother me. It's more the emotional stuff that was a little more yeah. stressful. You quote Simone de Beauvoir and and Germaine Greer, both kind of more or less saying that actually it's a good time when you're the, the postmenopausal period is is a really good time. And I I was going to see a this is rather embarrassing a shaman once, and he he uh, he said to me, this is a great time for you. You're about to come into your power, but you know, because of your menopause. And I was like, you what, mate? I'm on HRT. But the, the, the book is about the physical and the mental shit that we will go through, but also the mental stuff that we need to go through, exactly what you were talking about there. Do you think part of confronting the menopause is not just about HRT, do I, don't I, and the old vaginal atrophy and hot sweats and this, that and the other? But is it about confronting the demons in our lives? Does menopause ask us to confront our demons? I don't know whether I would have put it like that. I think the thing that I found when I was talking to women when I was researching the book was that what I think it does is it it gives you permission to put yourself first. And that's whether that's because of the drop in estrogen, you know, like estrogen has been dubbed the bidability hormone. And whether, you know, whether it's something to do with that, whether it's to do with life stage, whether it's to do for women who have children with the children having left. But every woman I spoke to, almost without exception, had reached a point in her life somewhere between 45 and 55 in the main where she had gone enough. Enough. I am not putting up with this anymore. And whether that was a psychological, whether that was a relationship, whether it was work, you know, every single one had reached that point, and which I found absolutely fascinating. I was talking to a psychotherapist the other day who said that, I mean, he was generalising, but he said around around middle age, men tend to narrow their focus and shut down, whereas women's mm-hmm. focus really widens out and they look to the world for adventures, whereas men can, can really... They're just all about their telly and their rituals and their routines. Um, so you know. many of the women I spoke to said that in, about relationships. I mean, actually, one of the most fascinating chapters to write was the one that was about sex and relationships. And, you know, the number of women who either, I would say 50% of them had either left their partners or wanted to leave their partners. Mm. And um, of the ones who didn't, you know, several of them, I mean, there's one, I can't remember which one it was, but one of them saying, you know, basically, he, you know, he's a nice bloke, he's a good dad, he's a perfectly good husband, but, you know, all he wants, really wants to do is play golf, have a pint on the way back and eat Kung Po, Kung po Prawn and then do it all again tomorrow. Mm. And yeah, that's not what I want. And there's another woman who's left her husband of 24 years once her children were more or less older. And she said that most of her friends just couldn't accept that she hadn't left for someone else, that she'd left for her. And she went to see uh, a therapist and they said this is so common that, you know, at this age, women leave their husbands and it's very, very rare. I mean, I keep saying husbands, but, you know, it was mainly in in a heterosexual context, that um, it's very, very rare that men leave just to leave. They, you know, almost always leave for someone else, which I thought was fascinating. The book's very well researched although you 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 wear the research very very lightly as i say it is a it's quite a romp 
But I was there was some really interesting stuff in there about so increase in eating disorders in uh, mm. menopausal women and uh, high rates of suicide. Talk me through some of the things that you learnt. That I mean, I have to say, when I was reading some of these things, it was a bit of a penny drop. Like when I mm. when I started get, becoming menopausal, I became really fascinated by fasting. I don't necessarily think it was a bad thing, but I did get slightly into a kind of obsession about eating and stuff. But talk me through some of the things that you you discovered that surprised you. I mean, I, because I've also seen menopausal women really get their shit together when it comes to looking after themselves. And you actually have a chapter about that, about women, you know, realising they've got to look after themselves because it's, you know, it's the only body they've got. Um yeah, talk, talk, talk me through yeah. some of the surprising things you learned about. Well, 50 did seem to be a real, a real turning point for loads of women in terms of fitness. And, you know, it was weird cause last week I went out for a drink with some friends and a guy was there and he's like, oh, you know, my wife, like, she couldn't come because she's gone kayaking. And I was like, kayaking? She's probably, in fact, she's, I think she's exactly my age. She's 54. I was like, does she, has she always been sporting? He was like, no, started when she was 15. And I think it's partly to do with like, you've got one body, use it or lose it. But it's also that point when you realize your body is changing and it feels out of your control. You know, in the way that you're born in adolescence, your body, your body changes. And that, that, you know, when most young, young people, young women develop eating disorders is at that point that point when their body starts to spiral out of their control and i think it's really interesting that that kind of almost recurs mm. and that it makes it kind of to me it, it the more i read the more it made perfect sense to me that menopause is almost like a reverse puberty yeah and it's like all the kind of maelstrom of of going through puberty but with the additional you know responsibility and grown-upness allegedly of being 50 and it was that when that like you say when that penny dropped I just thought well yeah because you know puberty is all those hormones rushing in and menopause is all those hormones rushing out and we're programmed to think society is programmed to think that that's a bad thing but why just because you know in what world are we are we still in a world where women are only useful if they can have children well I mean this this leads me to another big thing that you 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 go into is the is i mean to, without putting any fine points on it it's the loss of your fuckability i can remember i was a picture byline of me and minx and i'm just wearing like the most ridiculously boyish unsexy clothes and i look at that picture and i think oh why didn't i look more hot uh but like why did I even think I should look hot? Yes, yeah, why did you? <laughs> like, like, because that's still, you know, that is still the the way that young women are judged. I mean, they're still expected to kind of pay their rent, if you like, in society by looking and behaving in the appropriate way, even though a lot of them are pushing back against that. I think it's still a, it's still a really, really big thing. Well, there's that brilliant Kristen uh, Fleabag quote, isn't it? The Kristen Scott Thomas quote, which I used at the beginning and which was a real kind of light bulb moment for me in writing the book. I mean, she said, the menopause comes and it's the most wonderful fucking thing in the world. Yes, your entire pelvic floor crumbles and you get, sorry, so many spares. You get fucking hot and no one cares and then you're free. You're no longer a slave, no longer a machine with parts. You're just a person. It's horrendous, but then it's magnificent. And that's... That's how it feels. You're a person. You know, what the book is about, really, 
is about that, for me, the journey through, that menopause was the link through to finding this was my old identity and this is my new identity. And I think identity is completely the right word. Yeah. It's like, who am I now? That's who I was then. And I'm like, do I still want to be that person? If I do, then great. Not, you know, if you do knock yourself out to keep being that person, but I'm, I'm happier in the new identity that I've found. And I think that's, you know, what a lot of this is about, you know, anti-aging treatments and, you know, all your clothes suddenly not suiting you, all of that stuff. It's all about, it's not that they're different. It's that you are and, and that this process is about, well, okay, who am I now and who do I want to be? And, you know. One thing, one place you do not go. I can't believe you found one. Yeah, no, you don't. One thing menopause really made me confront, and and I think it's part of what you were talking about. So you're talking about who do I want to be, and what one of the things I had, I didn't want to make this all about me, but it is effectively all about us women who are going through yeah. this. So I I feel like I want to share. Yeah. But the, the menopause <laughs> for me really made me realise I've only got a few decades left, and mm. I really had to sit with death. I re- and I, the the Banderics helped with that. Um, but I really had to sit with death and my own death and nothing focuses your mind like considering the end. And I was like, whoa, I need to sort my shit out so I can really enjoy the next however many decades I've got. I hope it's decades. <laughs> yeah, fingers crossed. Did you, did you consider that at all? I don't think I did, you know. I think um, I I would say for me, it was, oh, I think it's the second chapter I, I talk about kind of a sense of an expiry date and uh, uh, feeling moribund, which is the worst, worst word in the world. Mm. Um, and I, so I think I didn't really think about death other than to think about the fact that while I was writing this, this book, there was a four-week period where three women who were my age, you know, bright, intelligent, successful women, all died. Of cancer mm. in the space of one month and that really concentrated my mind it wasn't I wasn't really thinking so much about my own death as I was thinking what are you moaning about you are here you are comparatively really really healthy you know and that's you know as Nora Ephron said consider the alternative yeah yes rest in peace Nora Ephron included I've I've as a writer I have to ask you about your process um and your routines i'm so fascinated by all of that what <laughs> is your writing routine how is your discipline as you know i always get my copy in late are you do you write to a kind of incredible get up at five write for three hours then get on being you know oh, God, famous no. editor or how how, how long what is you your process me? sam Baker? <laughs> <laughs> well i i haven't really got one i'd like to say i do i've been really all over the place actually for the last couple of years so, I mean, this book, I did the research really by way of procrastination. And I tried, um, I tried to keep a structure because for most of my working life, I've worked in an office and I've commuted and, you know, it was not, it meant nothing to me for my working day to be between 12 and 14 hours. And so really I've been going through a process of adjusting to not having to work stupidly long hours and, that kind of presenteeism, I must be a good person because I'm working really hard. Um, no, I, I tend to, I'm a bit of a, you know, like I was the person who revised the night before exams. I'm the person who writes the feature the day before it's due. 
not like you the day after it's due, but the day before, <laughs> literally the day before. And that's how I wrote the book, really. I got to a point where I'd done all the research and I couldn't put it off any longer. Um, and then I wrote it in a pretty solidly, just got up every day, did it, went to bed, got up every day, did it. So I don't, I'd love to be one of those people like, uh, who gets up at five, does three hours, you know, gets the kids off to school, goes to the gym, does another three hours. I'm just not, I'm not that person, you know. Yeah, I read once that um, Catelyn Moran wrote How to Be a Woman by getting up at five o'clock every morning and writing for a couple of hours. And I've just, <laughs> I'm, I'm waiting for that moment to kick in for me. <laughs> do, do you plot out your books? Do you get graph paper and, and chart it out and put in key, key events that you think are really important? Or how does all that work? Well, with all the fiction, um, I did plot it out because I, uh, when I was writing those, I did have a full-time job. So I was writing, you know, all weekend, every weekend. Um, and if you put something down for a week and then you go back to it, you need something that helps you easily pick up where you left off. But with this, the way nonfiction works is that I had written an enormous proposal and the book was sold. So the proposal was probably 15,000 words. So did you have sample chapters in there? Yeah, there was, uh, they weren't whole chapters, they were um, probably the first couple of thousand words of two or three chapters to show the variety of content. Right. Um, there was a great big structural breakdown, there was a chapter breakdown, there was, and then the introduction of the book pretty much was the, the pitch document. So it was, it was all mapped out, and so then I just went off and researched, read all the material, broke it down into the subjects, and then, and then did all the interviews to, to pad that out. So, I mean, it's, it's quite different to writing fiction. It's much more like a great big journalist project, whereas writing fiction is much more, okay, I've got all my stuff on the wall and this is this character and that's that character. And you just have to sit down every day and do it. Whereas I didn't approach this in the same way at all. So fiction versus nonfiction is a, it's a structural difference or? Is it an emotion? Do you engage emotionally differently with the project? Yeah, I mean, this was this project was obviously for me very personal as well. But I think it's you know fiction is a it's very solitary. I mean, so I think it's really it's really strange being a fiction writer in you know today's climate where you have to spend so much time selling your book, but the rest of your time is spent like sitting at your desk or in your bed just writing in your head with made up people. Mm. You know, whereas this, this is, non-fiction is much more journalism and I, I think it comes more naturally to me to do it. I like writing fiction, but I'm always really grateful when it's finished. And with writing, when, when did you first realise that you wanted to be a writer and was writing books about feeding that need when you were an editor? Because actually editors do bugger all writing, really, don't they? Oh, and no writing at all, apart from the dreaded editor's letter, which you spend the entire month avoiding writing. I wanted to write stories when I was little. And I, we had a, I remember when I was nine, we were set, it was a really hard project for nine year olds. We were set this project where they, we had to write a 40 page story and only two of us in the class finished it. And in fact, I didn't get to 40, I only got to 30. And I remember the teacher saying to me, you need to keep this because you'll look back when you're a bit older and you'll see why I'm laughing. And um, <laughs> it was all like, you know, here's this character and he's three foot six, <laughs> that kind of thing. Yeah. But, then I went, I, the, you know, the school I went to, it wasn't a school where kids got to do anything like that. You know, I remember going to Korea's teacher the, and saying, 
oh, I want to, I, would ha I had a new obsession with smash hits and saying to the careers teacher, he said, what do you, you know, what are your, what I, what are your plans, you know? And I was like, well, I want to work on smash hits. I want to be a journalist. I want to be doing that. And he just looked at me and went, girls like you don't do things like that. You can be a nurse or a teacher. And both of those jobs are incredibly important, good, valuable jobs. But that was, that was what I, I was told to like, get out and go and be a nurse or a teacher. Wow, Sam, girls like you don't, that's quite an extreme kind of trigger, I imagine, when you go into, I imagine, the managing director of a publishing company to apply for the job of one of Britain's premier high fashion titles. And the guy tells you girls like you don't get jobs like this. Do you know what? It was only when I said that just now, when I said girls like you don't, that I thought, oh my God, you know, I've written that whole book. <laughs> this is not the first interview I've done about it. And mm. I just thought, and that was the point when I realised that's what happened. So I've literally had a revelation live on air. That, but that, that's... that's what happened when he said that to me, when he said, you don't come from the right background to do this job. That's it, Now it makes perfect sense to me that that literally did push me right over the edge. And that was it. For me, that was it. I was like, no going back from here. Reading your book really recharged my feminine i'm not I, i'm not as i'm not as um i i would i'm not as good a feminist as you are you know i think you've you've, you've read the books and you've walked the walk the talk, the talk but mm. it did make me realize just we've still got a long long way to go the the best the semaphores from our culture about femi about femaleness are, are still really so negative and so narrow uh and i've got a niece of 11 and i'm I'm so inspired by her. I think that generation are going to be awesome. And I hope I'm around long enough to um, to see how they, they work with it. But but we, our generation, are still living in a very sexist culture. Sexist culture, yeah. Yeah, and I, you know, you, you really relit that fire and that fury in me, actually. Because I think, especially when you're in a relationship, everybody can just settle down into their roles. Doesn't mean yeah. I don't feel like throwing the bloody laundry basket through the window sometimes. And I think that has really happened, hasn't it? It's really happened since through lockdown. It's like the number of people who used to, who of my friends who said their relationship was equal and now, you know, they're the ones worrying about homeschooling and, you know, they were the ones, suddenly they found they were the ones doing the cleaning and, you know, I think there's a lot to be done. But feminism also, it, it needs, it needs to be more inclusive. It needs. Yeah. You know, it's like all areas of society. It's not just about people that look like you. It, it's got to, it's got to go wider than that. It's got to be, if you're, I don't know how to put it. I mean, I don't, this, I don't want to get all, you know, patriarchy blah. But if you're, you know, if, if the job of, of feminism is, is fighting misogyny for the want of a better way of putting it, then, you know, all sorts of, all women are subject to misogyny, all, you know, trans women, Black women, working class women, you know, we're not all in it together because some people have very much worse experiences than others. But I think it's really important that you're fighting for all of them. Well, you've done a great job with this book to open the big wide arms, big, big wide sisterly arms and make us all feel, if not fuckable, then just fucking <laughs> fantastic in our own lives. Tell me what's next? What's next? Oh God, I don't know really. I mean, I'm, I'm just kind of waiting to see the books um, out 10th of September and I'm just waiting to see how, how it goes down really. It's had a good response so far. There's a, a podcast 
which is just really about celebrating women who are north of 40, um, also called The Shift, and that launched on Tuesday. Um, and that will run, you know, the plan is for that. It will definitely run weekly until Christmas, and I hope I'll be able to make it pay um, enough just to keep going. So, who have you got on? Uh, so, the first season, uh, the issue that's uh, the episode that's out is Tasmina Perry. Next week is Marion Keys, Jojo Moyes, uh, Sarah Collins, uh, Caroline DeMagre, Joe Wiley, uh, you. Um, yeah. And then I've just started filming the next season, which um, so far is uh, lovely. Meg Matthews, uh, Jodie Pico, Denise Mina, and... Um, loads more lined up so yeah it's really exciting and it's just so fascinating talking to loads of women between you know for roughly 45 upwards just about their experience of it and the, the completely different conversations that you have cool well good luck with the book i loved it great. i'm gonna buy gonna buy a couple for a few friends of mine and that's what i like to hear and it's lovely to see you again. And I will see you soon. Yes, see you. Thanks, Kate. Sam Baker, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Birmingham Lit Fest Presents podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love for you to tell us about it. Leave us a review and a rating. Find us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook at Beham Lit Fest. And take a look at the rest of this year's digital programme on our website at www.birminghamliteraturefestival.org. You can download our latest podcast episodes every Thursday from all the places you would normally get your podcasts. Until then, happy reading. The Birmingham Lit Fest Presents podcast is curated by Chantal Edwards and produced by 11C and Birmingham Podcast Studios for Writing West Midlands.